Um, We do continue our study of the book of Galatians this morning. We're going to be in the second portion of chapter 5 of Galatians. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't have uh, your Bible with you, I would encourage you to grab one of these hard uh, black uh, hardback Bibles in the pew front in front of you and uh, turn. It's uh, on page uh, 1034 um, where we will be today. And let me also say that if you do not have a copy of God's Word, to call your very own, please take one of these with you this morning as our gift to you. There is no greater gift that we could give to you as a church than the Word of God. Um, We have been in Galatians for several weeks. We've got two more weeks after this one, which means that we only have three weeks until Easter, which caused me to panic a little this week when I realized that. Um, But uh, let's just remember where we have been as we've been walking through Galatians. The first couple of chapters of Galatians, Paul has used his life to show us that the gospel frees us. We have seen that we cannot earn God's favor through legalism, through following the rules and trying to earn our salvation. But we've also seen that the gospel comes not from men, but only from God, and that Jesus transforms our lives like he transformed Paul's. That only through faith in Christ are we accepted before God and alive in him. And then in the next two chapters, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul turned to the Old Testament to show how these themes and this gospel and this promise from God has been present from the very beginning. We saw how in Christ we, we have the fulfillment of the law that was given to Moses and the completion of the promise that was given to Abraham. We also see that through this fulfillment and completion, God has graciously adopted us, giving us the position of heirs and the privilege of of airship. And finally, we realize that we might encounter opposition from those who claim to be religious, but that we must walk in God's grace and live with great zeal for His purpose and not for our own. Y'all are over here. Last week, we started the last section of Galatians, these last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, and we saw that since we are uh, set free, we need to stop living as if we are still enslaved to sin and the law. We saw that we are, are set free not to do whatever it is that we want, whatever it is that we desire, because to do that would just be to re-enter into slavery to sin. Rather, we saw that we are set free to follow God and His will and His design. Something that we are not able to do apart from His grace setting us free. And so this week, we're going to continue to see how the freedom that we have been given through the power of the Holy Spirit allows us to conquer and beat the desires of the flesh which constantly threaten to slip that yoke of slavery once again upon our Shoulders. So we are in Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 16. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we open your word and as we dive into it this morning, I just pray that we would see the ways in which your spirit empowers us to, to reject the flesh, to reject slavery to sin, and to seek and live into new life in you by your spirit. God, as we study your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. There is a, a clear focus here in these verses, a clear focus on the need of the power of the Spirit. We see it three different times. We see it in verse 16, in verse 18, and in verse 25. In verse 16, we're told to walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, we are told to be led by the Spirit. And in verse 25, we are told to live by the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. This walking, living, leading by the Spirit, this is not a call for super-Christians. This is not a call for those who are super-spiritual. This is not a call for those who are leaders. You know, all too often I see comments like this. I think we probably all experience comments like this. Well, it's easy for him to live by the Spirit. He's a more mature believer than I am. Or, well, of course she's led by the Spirit. She leads a small group. Or, he teaches Sunday school. Of course he lives by the Spirit. Or this one, although I haven't heard this one as much. He's a deacon. Of course he lives in the power of the Spirit. That was a deacon joke, by the way. But here's the thing. Are you a parent? Are you single? Are you widowed? Are you a teenager? Have you been a believer for years? Were you baptized this morning? You need this passage. Because we all need to learn how to walk by the Spirit. And so here, Paul is going to show us how to do that. Now, it's important for us to note, Paul has been 
from the beginning writing and talking against these false teachers that have moved into these churches in Galatia, and he is still doing that as he addresses and explains these finer points of the Christian life. As we start this passage, we see that there are four important truths about walking in the Spirit. First, we see that we must continually walk by the Spirit. We see that right at the beginning of verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit. There is no, uh, nothing there to tell us walk by the Spirit sometimes, walk by the Spirit every now and then, walk by the Spirit when you feel like it. He's telling us to walk by the Spirit always, continuously. We need to yield to the Spirit every day. When you're at work, yield to the Spirit. When you're at school, yield to the Spirit. When you're at the ball game, playing in the ball game, watching the ball game, observing the ball game, yield to the Spirit. For some of us, when we are at home in front of the television, that is hard. Particularly when we see that Duke is going to end up in the Final Four. Are you at home with your family, with your children, with your spouse, with your parents? Yield to the Spirit. See, there is not one place, there is not one aspect of our lives where we don't need to walk by the Spirit. Because to walk by the Spirit means that we are called to follow the teacher. Follow the Master. This is, this is discipleship. Remember what it is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to follow the teacher. To mold yourself on the teacher. To yield to the teacher. To be a disciple of Jesus is to yield to the Spirit. We must listen to the Spirit's Word, discern the Spirit's will, and follow His guidance and design. This is not something for the super-Christian, for, for a deeper and more spiritual life. This is to be the normal, everyday, mundane life to which all Christians are called. Yield to the Spirit. Second, we must walk by the Spirit in order to conquer the flesh. We see this is the latter part of verse 16. And you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is a promise. This is a promise that if we are walking by the Spirit, if we are submitting to His will and to His design, we have the promise that we will not live for and by our fallen human nature. We will not live by our flesh. Now here is the very uncomfortable thing. This is what made me uncomfortable this week as I was working through this. There is no middle ground here. You either are or you aren't. You are either submitting to the Spirit and living by His design and purpose or you are seeking to gratify your flesh. It is one or the other. There is no room here for equivocation. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't like binary decisions. I am the person who always wants to find the other solution. You know that old, that old uh, uh, thought experiment, mental game, the trolley is going down the tracks, 
and it's going to run over 16 people, but if you throw the lever, you'll save those 16 people, but it'll kill one. What do you do? I'm the one who's always trying to find something else to do with the trolley. But here, there is no middle ground. The way that we deal with sin is not simply saying no to it, but by saying yes to the work of the Spirit. See, conquering the flesh does not come from knowledge or ability. It is possible to know all of the things about theology. It is possible to know all of the Bible and still indulge in the very worst impulses. In the last few years, we have seen prominent minister after prominent minister fall from grace because they could not or would not say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. We have seen men whose entire lives, whose entire ministries have been destroyed. Wise men, smart men, men who knew a lot more than I do, and the knowledge did not save them. You know, growth does not happen simply because you read books or you go to conferences or even coming to worship. Those things are all really good, and I would commend all of them to you. I would hope that you would have a hunger to learn more and to grow, and that is one way to do it, and it's one way to feed yourself. But growth happens when God changes us from the inside out by the Spirit. Growth happens when we are born again. And once we are born again, we must submit to Him and His will and His design daily. See, what the flesh desires is against the Spirit. This is the third thing. We must walk by the Spirit because the battle is intense. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. Those are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. You know, we are living in an age that tells us the exact opposite of this. We are living in an age that tells us over and over and over again to indulge. Man, that is the whole purpose of marketing and advertising. is to get you to indulge. Really watch advertisements someday and see what it is that they're selling you. They're, most of the time, they're not selling you the product. They're selling you indulgence. Hey, indulge yourself and have a snicker because you're not you. You're not you when you're angry, when you're hungry. Hey, you want to be the sexy man on the horse, on the beach, Use Old Spice. You want the attractive partner who loves you and will do anything for you? Buy this product. It's indulgence. 
We live in an age where we're told over and over and over again to indulge, to give in to the flesh. And here is the thing. This is the thing that, another thing that makes me uncomfortable as I think about this. In very many ways, the pagan culture of the Greeks was better than ours. Because the Greeks at least understood there was a virtue in self-denial. The Greeks at least understood that there was a virtue in sacrifice. Now, did everybody in their culture do it? Of course not. But they understood that that was the case. And yet now, we lift up this this false virtue of self-indulgence. Part of our difficulty in battling the flesh is that the enemy wants us to have a casual attitude about sin. It's not that big a deal. I mean, I think we do. I think we give lip service to sin and to confession, but I think all too often we fail to really grasp the gravity of our sin. Because if we really grasp the gravity of our sin, we would be broken by that reality every day. And those of us who call ourselves Christians would be living a different way if we understood the true gravity of our sin. See, the Christian life is a war. It's a spiritual war. And in order to conquer the flesh, we must understand that we are at war and the gravity of the battle and then resolve to walk by the Spirit. We face the temptations of the world and of our own flesh. And in fact, our own flesh would seek to betray us, to lead us into rebellion and treason against our King and our Savior. You know, there are those out there who seek to withdraw from the world in order to limit sin and temptation. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to pull into my holy huddle. I'm only going to be around other believers, and that will keep me free of temptation and sin. Except the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The problem is not in the world, but it's in the flesh, and it's in our fallen hearts. Any of y'all ever uh, watched the, the mystery show Father Brown? We love Father Brown. Father Brown, based on a series of stories written by uh, a British author by the name of G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton, at the turn of the 20th century, was, was one of probably the most famous and prominent sort of writers, cultural critics, public intellectuals in Britain. And so as such, he was asked to write things all the time. And so one time a paper came to him and they said, we're going to run this thing where we're asking various prominent people in our culture to address the question, what is wrong with the world? You've seen things like this before, right? You know, the paper will do them and, you know, and there's little, these sort of little mini essays that people address. And so Chesterton said, wonderful, I would love to participate. And he sent back a two-word answer to the question. What is the problem 
with the world today. And those two words were, I am. Because Chesterton understood. Chesterton understood that the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. The problem's in our heart. You know, when people ask the question, why do bad things happen? Sometimes that's a good indication that they do not see and understand the seriousness of sin and of the battle that is fought out there and have forgotten about the battle that's fought in here. You know, one of our cultural mantras these days is follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your bliss. It's one of the problems that I have sometimes, as big a Disney fan as I am, the problem I have sometimes with some Disney movies. Because if you watch them uncritically, they give you this message of follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Let it go. Let it go. Just embrace the coldness within, Elsa. Allow yourself to be who you are and everything will be okay. This is a lie from the enemy. We cannot follow our hearts because our hearts, apart from God, are wicked, vile, polluted things. Apart from the Spirit, our hearts will lead us astray every single time. I think Elsa should let it go. I think Elsa should let it go by submitting herself to the Spirit of God. I think Elsa should let it go by having the Holy Spirit shape and form her. Elsa isn't a problem because she can make cold things happen. Elsa is a problem because her heart has not been shaped and formed by Christ. We must get over the idea that we are basically good and well-meaning. We are not. We are, by our very fallen nature, opposed to the ways of God and the ways of holiness, purity, and goodness. And so we see that we must walk by the Spirit to be free from the law. We see that right there in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's take if and let's turn it into since. It would work there. But since you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We are not under the old system. Life in the Spirit brings a whole new way of living. It's not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Freedom to pursue life in the Spirit. Freedom to submit ourselves to the Spirit. Freedom to be formed by God. Freedom to have new desires that well up in us that put aside the works of the flesh and grow the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's interesting that Paul says that the, the works of the flesh are obvious. 
I mean, we, we often talk as if it's not obvious, it's not easy to tell whether or not we're walking by the Spirit. But Paul shows us that it's not very hard. He gives us this extensive list of vices that are works of the flesh. These can be broken into sort of four areas. They can be broken into sex, religion, relationship, and indulgences. You know, these kind of lists of vices and virtues, very popular in the culture at the time and popular in Scripture. We see them many times in Scripture. Right there in verse 19, the first three, sexual immorality, moral impurity, and promiscuity. Note that Paul lists these vices of sex first. He does it in other places. He does it in Ephesus. He does it in 1 Corinthians. Jesus Christ himself lists them first when he has a vice list in Mark. These are, these are pretty general. Sometimes Paul gets a little more specific in his sexual vices, but these, these are pretty general. He's, he's just throwing everything under these. See, sexual sin is a, is a major problem for many reasons. It, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It it affects others. Sometimes we have this idea that, that, that sexual immorality and sexual sin is only affecting me, but it always affects other people. It dishonors those who are made in the image of God by turning them into a thing. Taking a person and treating them as an it. Sexual sin is radically self-centered. And most importantly, it violates God's pure plan for marriage. Marriage, which is, after all, an expression and an example and a symbol and a sign of God's relationship with the church. The next group is vices of religion. You know, we have this idea, he was a very religious person. You can be very religious and not walk by the Spirit. We see idolatry. You know, everyone worships something or someone. The question is not whether or not you worship, the question is what you worship. Even the most committed, hardline atheist worships something, often their own intellect and their own will. We engage in idolatry when we refuse to worship the true and living God. When we worship creations and not the Creator. Idolatry, and then he moves to sorcery. Sorcery, witchcraft, trying to manipulate the world to bring about a desired goal rather than submitting to and trusting in God alone. The next time you're in Wilmington or Fayetteville or Florence, go to Barnes & Noble and see how big the New Age, self-help, neo-pagan section of the bookstore has gotten. We were in Fayetteville just before Christmas. My first tarot set. Tarot for the kitties. This is a huge issue 
in our culture right now. People desiring to manipulate the world to get their desired goal rather than submitting to the Creator. It's a heart issue. It's looking to something other than God to get only what God gives. Salvation and peace and security and joy and provision. The biggest chunk of this vice list are vices of relationship. There are eight of them. Hatreds. Hatred is the root of conflict. Strife. Jealousy. Wanting what someone else possesses can lead to bitterness and violence. Outbursts of anger and being uncontrolled. Trying to excuse this, right? We do this sometimes. We try to excuse it by making it a personality quirk or a cultural trait. I've been guilty of that. Oh man, got my Irish up. Selfish ambition can be translated as office seeking. Are you constantly seeking the honor and the glorification of other people? Dissensions. You know, the spirit brings unity and the flesh brings disunity. Factions, obviously, closely related to dissension. It's it's rooted often in in false teachings. It's a kind of hyper-partisanship that creates divisions where there should be none. And finally, envy. You're not happy with God's gifts. And then we end with with these two vices of indulgence. Drunkenness and carousing. Which, by the way, is a word I think we should bring back. I think we should use carousing more often. The next time someone tells you they were out partying with the boys, say, no, 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 you were carousing. It's a good word. But these are rooted in the inability to control your appetite. Living a life dominated by the flesh and not by the Spirit. Paul finishes with, with a warning. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're living under the rule of the flesh, you should stand in fear because you will not enter the coming kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that we do not still wrestle with sin. Of course we do. But it's about wrestling with sin versus being dominated by it. We all will wrestle with sin. We will wrestle with sin until the day we die or until Jesus returns, whichever comes first. But are you going to allow yourself to be dominated by it? Are you you going to allow yourself to be controlled by it? See, the Spirit gives us new desires and a new power to live. Good works will not save us, but true salvation leads to fruitfulness and faithfulness. Then Paul gets to this list of virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. Note here, singular. These are not the fruits of the Spirit. They are the fruit of the Spirit. These virtues are not a choose-your-own-adventure that you get to pick and choose. Well, I'll take a little bit of kindness and a little bit of goodness and a, and a little bit of, of joy, but, but the rest of them... 
Do these together show an image of Christ-likeness? Love, joy, and peace. You know, it should not surprise us that love is mentioned first. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, what? Love is the greatest. Joy. And even in the midst of trials, because the Spirit gives us new affections and a new way of seeing the world, we can live with joy. How many Christians are known by joy? Not a lot of us. Sometimes Christians are known by their sourpuss. Not by their joy. Peace. It's a peace that's, that's made possible through the cross. Peace between ourselves and God. Peace within ourselves. But also a call to be peacemakers. Not only to have peace, but to seek peace. Patience, kindness, goodness. Patience. And, and you know, enduring is not easy. Let me tell you. I've wrestled this week because there's some things here that God has used this to call me out this week. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit that needs to grow a little bit in me. I'm, I'm not the most patient person in the world. But here's the thing, I can't do it on my own. I need the, the Spirit in order to endure, in order to be patient. You know, gentleness not being prone to, to harshness or meanness. Gentleness is not a virtue that, that we lift up in our culture. Far from it. In fact, we often laud and lift up men and women, not who are gentle, but who are harsh and who say it like it is and who speak their mind. Kindness you know, kindness that's expressed through acts of service and generosity and hospitality, goodness related to kindness, doing good deeds, being generous, faith, self-control. I put gentleness in the wrong order. Faithfulness to being a dependable person. Are you someone who can be counted on? Are you, can, are you somebody who keeps your word? And the last, self-control. Standing in opposition to those vices of indulgence in contrast to the works of the flesh that are all about giving in. Do you live a restrained life? Does the Spirit allow you mastery over your passions? This is an image of Christ-likeness. This is an image of what we are called to be. But we can only live this way through and by the Spirit, not by the law. These are not behaviors. These are statuses and positions of the heart. We, we, can, we could be led to believe as we read this that this Christian life is this tug of war between these vices and these virtues, but here is the good news. There is hope and power in those who have a new identity in Christ. You're not hopeless in the battle. You're not powerless in the battle because believers belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have 
crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Remember back to Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When we trust in Christ alone for salvation and not the work of our hand or anyone or anything else, we are united with Christ in saying no to our life in Adam. We will still feel temptation, but fleshly passions will no longer have the reins of our life. Because for freedom, Christ has set us free. Let us stand firm and not submit again to the yoke of slavery. It is hard to live free. It is hard to put these fleshly desires to the side. It is hard not to be dominated by them. That's why we need a Savior, because we can't do it. But we can do it by the Spirit. And so this morning, if you would like to take those first steps in living a life free of these passions and walking by the Spirit, I would encourage you to express that as we sing our hymn of invitation 317.